need to tell you that I woke up early this morning. I had prepared my sermon, which was from John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. And uh, I was sitting in my living room at the quiet of this morning. It was cool enough. I turned, turned on the propane fireplace, and I was watching the flame, and I got to thinking about this service. And I couldn't shake the overwhelming sense that we were going to gather together and be the church, and we were going to celebrate communion together. And then I realized my parents came to Christ when I was five years old, two weeks apart. My mom got saved first, and then two weeks later, my dad did. And from that time on of my time of being five years old, church has been just a regular part of my life. I grew up and I watched how God worked in their lives, how they got baptized, how they joined a church, how the Lord called my father to leave a career at the phone company and become a pastor. And then I watched how communion became a part of our lives. And then it struck me this morning and I wrote to the elders and I asked for their permission to change what I was going to speak about today because I realized it has been six months since we've been able to gather and have communion. And what struck me was I am 48 years old, and that's the longest I've ever gone in my entire life without either participating in communion or seeing it patterned before me as a child. And so with that in mind, here we are. It's not just another Sunday. It's not just another Lord's table or communion. Communion is one of two distinguishing gifts that God has given to his church. One being baptism, and I hope and pray that we're going to have one, another one of those in just a few short weeks from now. And this thing called communion. Now, what might surprise you as people, however young or old you are, however new to church you are, or however maybe you're like me, your story is, I was raised in this and I was around it, but maybe what you don't realize is outside of Matthew chapter 26 and Luke, or sorry, Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 22 and John chapter 13 through 17, only in two other passages in the book of Acts, and again in 1 Corinthians 11, those are the only places where you will read about communion. And so I'd like to take some time this morning as I set up our time together. Go with me if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, and let's go to Luke chapter 22. Luke is probably, for me personally, my favorite gospel writer. He is a details guy. He draws you into the emotion. Matthew, as a writer, is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He kind of focuses on the Jewish laws and customs and traditions, so I struggle to always identify with that. Mark is a very direct guy. He just gives you the facts. He's almost like a policeman reporting the, the, the scene, and so I find his gospel to be a little bit just dry. It's just factual. John, of course, is the different one of all. I love the Gospel of John, very conversational, but there's a lot of things because he's got an agenda in writing his Gospel. Luke is the investigative reporter. Luke is the guy who is telling you, bringing you into the scene, letting you know what's happening. And in Luke chapter 22, if you will look at verse 14, 
Jesus is getting ready to go die on the cross. This is the last Passover that they're going to celebrate. And Luke says in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, when the hour came, that's an expression you'll read a lot about in the books of the Gospels. This hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Do you you see it here? Notice the emotions of Jesus, these expressions that give us insights into the person. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup. You'll notice that difference if you read Matthew or Mark or John, or you read how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11. He took a cup, and that's because there were four different cups in a Passover meal. Four different times when you are scheduled to drink together. It's a very deliberate, thoughtful, and thought-out meal together. In fact, a true, uh, traditional, what they call Jewish Seder, a Passover meal, can take up to four hours to enjoy because there's various aspects. He took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. So I want you to realize the the time frame that Luke is giving you. He had taken a cup, and that's Luke giving us the insights into the fact that this meal was taking place. He prays, he breaks bread, he tells them, basically the way that this bread is broken, I'm going to be broken for you. I'm going to suffer. Now, we're going to learn when I preach from John chapter 12 that the disciples still don't get it. So close and yet so far away. Oh, they could intellectually probably tell you a lot of things, like many of us may be here. But they were missing the significance. They were missing the true purpose, the expanded meaning. They were missing how profound it was. And if every one of you, from the youngest of you here to the oldest of you, will take some time to see Jesus, it will affect you. But in the same way he took the cup after supper. I love this one. This is probably why Luke is my favorite. Because the third cup in a Passover Seder is actually called, are you ready for this? The cup of salvation. That's the cup he chooses. This is the one, this cup after supper. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Now notice, but look, the hand of one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And don't don't miss this. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Here's why I love this. Because on this day, six months after we have been driven out of here, on March the 15th, we had our last gathered Sunday. And then we quickly gathered online, and you've been so faithful and so encouraging and so patient, and I've loved you for it. But I don't know about you, but I have learned over the last six months that I'm more like the dog in the movie Up than I ever care to admit. 
Have you ever felt that? Like squirrel? Like I'm so easily distracted. I have found myself so focused at certain points during the last six months when we first entered the lockdown and everything was closed and we really were afraid and then the calls funeral home broke out and we all of a sudden had 200 plus cases here and we wondered if this thing was just going to race away from us. And everybody was cautious and everybody was a little scared. And I don't know if you were like me, but I, every single morning I got up and I went to the John Hopkins world map and I looked at how the coronavirus was going everywhere. And then I have a CTV COVID tracker and I would watch every province and watch every update. And then I would read my Bible and we started doing on things online and I started doing a daily Devo online and we started doing all these things and I would have these wonderful, glorious spiritual moments and then squirrel, I'd be distracted. I'd get frustrated. I'd get tired. I'd snap at somebody or misunderstand them or miss the purpose entirely. Can you relate? Have you been there? I'm seeing some nodding heads. This is what gives me hope. This is why I love the Bible. It's why I believe the Bible's true. You'd never write this if this was a conspiracy and have all of these humans basically be just ding-dongs. They just don't get it. But it reminds us of ourselves. The only perfect, the only hero of your Bible is Jesus. And so they began to argue. Here is Jesus giving them this beautiful meal. He's done all these miracles, all of these things. They feel the tension of the political climate. They know that uh, the Pharisees are out to get them. They know that Rome is in control. They're dealing with all of the same stresses and tensions that you and I are living. And then Jesus comes along and he gives them these wonderful promises. He tells them what's going to happen And they're so easily distracted. Now, take from there and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the one and or the last place in the entire New Testament where communion's talked about. Now, I don't know about you, but this is another reason I kind of love the Bible and it also makes me uncomfortable because the last place that you're going to read about communion is not very flattering. It's not what you would expect. We're, we're so conditioned by Hollywood and Disney. We, ever, we always want to hear, and they lived happily ever after, right? The end. You get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. This is the last time Jesus gives us any instruction about communion, and it's to a church, a talented church, a wonderfully gifted church. A growing church, a large church, an influential church. It is a church that represents and spans all the economics of the known culture of the time, all of these things. And he says, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And here he begins with, I hear that you have come together as a church and there are divisions among you. And I in part believe it indeed. It is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Now, 
lest you think this is meant to be a downer message on our first Sunday back, it's not, I promise. I got somewhere really good to go. But even when you're facing distractions and discouragement, dare I say depression, I have always said since this thing began that there will be three waves that we have to deal with as human beings. There's the coronavirus itself. Then there is the economics because of the coronavirus. And then there will be the mental anguish of all of this on our relationships and ourselves personally. And I have experienced this so personally. I'm a pretty extroverted guy. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. I am a bit of an optimist. I love to look at how we can handle things. I have never been so tired I've never wanted to quit more. I've never been so self-centered, me-focused. I have not just known, I have lived out. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. And I've just sung it in a mirror to myself. And yet, I have all the promises of God. I said to Debbie the other day, Debbie asked me how I was doing. I said, Debbie, I have every reason to be thankful and I just want to quit. And I'm so thankful that the Word of God is not only where I can find hope and answers, but the Word of God, Jesus loves me enough to confront me. And here Paul confronts this church and says, guys, you're missing it. You have made the table of the Lord not just ritualistic and institutionalized. You've actually made it something that actually doesn't bring goodness to the church body. And you know what his remedy is? It's not five steps to this or three steps to this. He simply says, let me tell you how Jesus did this. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed. Don't miss that. That's not a throwaway phrase. Paul is reminding this church that we're competing. This was a church divided. This was a church that had all the trimmings and appearances of something great. But deep down inside, they weren't quite clicking And he reminds them that, you know, Jesus did this on the night when he was betrayed. When his own closest circle didn't get it, they were confused. They're arguing over all of this. He says, no, 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 no. This is what the Lord did. He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. Notice how Paul wants us to know that. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you know what the remedy to discouragement is? And the remedy to depression is? And the remedy to division is? And the remedy to distraction is? Um, The word of God. Being reminded of who Jesus is, what he has done for you why you exist, who gives you value, who gives you purpose. Now watch, because my last passage I want to read for you, go a few more chapters ahead to 1 Corinthians 15. And then I want to bring us to the table of the Lord this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, I think, the greatest 58 verses on the resurrection of Jesus in all of the Bible. So basically what happens, to give you the idea, so Paul rebukes this church at Corinth and says, guys, you're getting communion wrong. 
And then his answer is the word of God. And then he goes even further because they're actually so divided. They're arguing amongst themselves so much. They're so distracted. They're so discouraged. They actually ask Paul, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I don't know about you, but we're here for the first time. Have you not had moments over the last six months where you found yourself doubting or questioning or wondering about Jesus, church, future, family, relationships, any, like you thought you would never question before? That you were almost shocked when you found yourself questioning or wondering, what's it all about? Is it all worth it? Does it all mean anything? Let me tell you, as one of your pastors, I've already experienced an overload of need amongst not only our home church here, but this community for help. As I've said, I'm 48 years old. I've been a pastor now almost a quarter of a century. I just celebrated my 25th year as a pastor. And in 25 years, I have dealt with all kinds of issues suicide or suicidal tendencies being one of them that I have people called me and I've been called to hospitals. I've been called to all kinds of things, but never in my entire pastoral life have I had four people call me in three days and say they wanted to end their life. And that has happened to me over the last six months, four times in 72 hours where people were that discouraged, that in despair, because they were doubting what they thought they would never doubt, because this has been a challenging time. Let's not try and sugarcoat it, but look at what Paul's answer is. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you have been saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one born in the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, so that you have believed." This is the promise. Now go all the way to verse 50. What am I saying? He sums it all up. Brothers and sisters, this is what I'm saying. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality when this corruptible body is clothed with, clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality then the saying that is written will take place. 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, these are rhetorical questions meant for you and I to burst out. It doesn't. Where death is your victory? You don't have it. Where death is your sting? It's gone. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you and I to take on our first Sunday back, week 27, September the 13th of 2020, in this city, in this province, in this country. Therefore, so because God has given us this, he gave us communion. Because we're easily distracted, because we can even be discouraged and depressed and even divisive, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember who you are in Christ. When you realize this, then comes, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding, excelling, doing the Lord's work. Why? Because you know that your labor is not in vain. So listen, I don't know how your last six months have been for many of you. Some of you, I'm seeing you for the very first time since March 15th. But I want you to know that whatever you are going through, whatever you have experienced, whatever you have gone through in your relationships, in marriage, in family, in parenting, in your job or loss of it, in your education, and for those of you that are students and all of the transitions of it, some of you here had a very anticlimactic grade 12 and a very bizarre beginnings to university. Some of you here and have started university and it's your first time or you're going into things and all you've done is stare at a computer and entered another Zoom call. Some of you have gone to school and it's been very weird. You wear a mask, you don't wear a mask. I read about in Alberta where three kids went to school and they came back with different masks. So you can imagine the stress and the, and the tension of moms and dads trying to navigate all that. And I see one... <laughs> Mom's face, give me like, all right? Yeah, this is going to happen. You're not going to have this many people. But Paul wants you and I to know because Jesus Christ lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, intercedes for us, ascended for us, is at the right hand of God the Father right now interceding for us, that if you have fought through to keep your focus in your relationships if marriage has been a little bit more tense, if family a little bit more tricky, if trying to figure out your future has been a little bit more pressure-filled, these words are everything you do for me counts. Even here in St. John's, Newfoundland at Calvary Baptist Church, in all of your lives, the ultimate cosmic God of the universe, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords has numbered the hairs of your head. I read this past week how when Jesus stands before God the Father and he stands to intercede for us and he raises his hands, that our names are written on his hands. This is why we do communion. So whether you're young this morning and you're here and you're trying to figure out what does all this mean?
Or maybe you're a young single person and you're trying to figure out your education or your relationships or your future and you're wondering, what is to become of all of this? Or maybe you're here in your first days or weeks or months of marriage, or maybe you've been years married and you're trying to make sense of all of that, or maybe you're trying to watch your children transition from junior high to senior high or from high school to university, or maybe you're trying to figure out, are my kids saved? Are my parents okay? All of these things. Jesus stands at the throne room of heaven and lifts up his hands, and your name and mine is graven on his hands. Your name is on his lips, and God the Father hears him, and he loves you. This is why we do communion. This is why we do this. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, if you want to write something down, let me give you some things to write down as we will do a very different communion as well today. Number one, remember. Number one, remember. We're going to come to the table of the Lord right now, and I want you to remember. In Luke 22, remember, he says, do this in remembrance of me. The psalmist says, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. So remember this morning. Secondly, like our liturgy, Let us come to communion and sorrow. We remember and we sorrow. We sing an old hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Debbie and I had a very unique experience with Debbie's parents just this last week. We were summoned to their home and they wanted to give their daughter something and it was a really neat experience for us and we didn't know how to react to it. At first, we didn't know what was happening. When you get summoned by your 87-year-old father-in-law to come to his house, you wonder, oh my goodness, what are we going to hear now? And they they just wanted to give us something that they had laid aside for each of their daughters. And and the way my father-in-law put it, it just struck me. And I welled up in tears thinking of the years that he struggled and served to be able to do that for his daughters. And while I was overwhelmed with his love I also was a little sorrowful at how much effort goes into showing love. Don't forget that this salvation that you and I have, for you and I to know, listen, I stand before you and from the youngest of you and all of you that are in those uh, transition years of high school into university, those young adults, listen to me. I know what it feels like to wonder, am I going to serve God? Is Jesus real? Is it all worth it? Am I going to step out from the shadow of my parents and make this thing mine? I get it. But I can tell you it's worth it. And what overwhelms me sometimes is to realize that it was my sin that sent Jesus to earth. My sin that sent him to a cross. My sin that made him have to go into a grave. But it was his love, his compassion that got him out of that grave. And so remember and then sorrow, but then be thankful and joyful. Give thanks. My biggest burden about this, one of the pressures for pastors in COVID has been exactly what I'm looking at right now. How do we do it safely? Can't have children's ministry. 
We got about eight bottles of hand sanitizer back there. I'm looking at some of you with, with your face, some of you with masks. There was, should we have church? What's it going to look like? Do you know over in Europe already churches have split over this stuff? There's a lot of this. One of my greatest desires for us to come back is with masks, with physical distancing, with the lack of this, with children and parents right now trying to keep their kids in order and trying to keep them quiet and all of this, that we have an opportunity to show that community out there and the world and our health department and everybody else, listen, it can be weird, it can even be awkward, it can be inconvenient, convenient, but you won't rob us of our joy. Because Jesus lives. And the greatest testimony we might be is not how big our church is, not how fancy our music is, not how wonderful our programs are. But you know what? As Pliny the Younger wrote to Caesar once when he described how he was going around sniffing out where Christians were and he described a church service. And I love the statement at the end. He said, Caesar, I don't know much about these Christians, but I'll tell you something. They die well. And I hope and pray that as Canada watches us start to gather, that they will know this. Man, they wear their masks. They've stopped having their potlucks, which probably means we're all going to lose a little bit of weight, which is actually not a bad thing. But man, you can give them all these restrictions, and they still gather, and they still sing, and they still love each other, and they're still happy. That will be a powerful testimony. And then finally, it is our duty. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is our duty because of who Jesus is to be here. Not to earn his favor, not to convince Jesus to love us, but because he loves us. I love Debbie both from response and duty. And when I do both, it has the greatest impact on her. Those of you that have children know what it means to love your children, not only out of response, but out of duty. Because you know it's who you are. And it's the funny thing, because your kids get to enjoy all of that love. And for most of it, they just think, mom and dad just love me. But one day they get older, and all of a sudden that light bulb goes on, and they realize, you know, mama didn't, mom and dad didn't have to do that. And what you'll find is, when they figure that out, then all of a sudden, you re- they, they really just love you at a whole new level. I remember saying to my father-in-law yesterday, Dad, your love for me has been such a blessing, and you've never owed me a thing. But you love me. And this is what we celebrate. So, I want you to remember, don't be afraid of sorrow. Let that lead you into joy and thanksgiving. And that will fuel your response. Because even now, we're going to do communion in the most different way in the history likely of this church. All of communion. We're not going to pass anything around. 
There's no broken bread. There'll be no individual cups. Everything you have is contained right here. And I do want to warn you, be careful when you peel off that top layer, because if you peel it too violently, you're going to get juice all over you, all right? But I want to take some time to lead us in communion. If you take that first layer and just peel it ever so gently, you'll uncover this wafer. And again, this is different because normally we'd have the elders come up. We'd have our music team come up. There would be music for all of this. But I want to give you an opportunity to just think about what's going to happen. We want to remember. We want to experience the gravity of why we do communion. We want to rejoice and be thankful And we want to come here because we're the family of God. So before we do this, because we're going to do it back to back, Debbie and Leanne and David are going to sing a song for us. And if any of you here, any of you, are hurting, searching, doubting, struggling, Jesus wants you too to remember to don't be afraid of your struggle, but to realize He loves you. He's gentle and lowly. And that you can come to Him because there's power in the cross. So let's sit together. Debbie and Leanne and David, why don't you sing this for us and then we will come to communion together as a family.